Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. Today, we will look ahead and try to make some predictions and identify some trends for 2024. And to help me do that, I have a wonderful guest here with me today, and that is Tom Standage. He is the deputy editor of The Economist, and he is the editor of its future gazing annual, The World Ahead. So quite a fitting guest for today's topic. Tom joined The Economist as a science correspondent in 1998 and was subsequently appointed technology editor, business editor and digital editor. He's the author of seven history books, so he's not only looking forward but also backwards. And those books include Writing on the Wall, The Victorian Internet, and the New York Times bestsellers A History of the World in Six Glasses and An Edible History of Humanity. So quite a broad portfolio of fascinating topics. His latest book is called A Brief History of Motion, and it was published in 2021. Tom studied engineering and computer science at Oxford University and has written for other publications as well, including The New York Times, The Guardian, and Wired. He takes particular interest in technology's social and historical impact. Welcome to our podcast, Tom. Hello, it's great to be here. Now, looking into the future is uh, difficult, but also always fascinating. Everybody wants to know what is coming up, what comes next. Before we talk a little bit about the trends that you have identified for 2024, I would like to talk a little bit about the process. So when you start working on the next year ahead publication, where do you start and what's your approach or methodology, if one might say? Sure. So we start each issue in May and we sort of get together and say, OK, what do we know about next year? And there are usually some fixed points. So there are things like elections and we have an unusually large number of elections in 2024. In fact, more than ever, we think. And then there are also things like sporting events. They're planned years in advance. So you know that they're coming there are anniversaries, there are astronomical events. Astronomical events are great because they're one of those things that you can absolutely be sure there's a solar eclipse happening in April, for example. You know that's going to happen. So these are all things that you have a very high degree of certainty are going to happen. So you sort of start with those. And then we have a meeting at The Economist and the entire editorial staff is invited not everyone attends, but we get a lot of people showing up. And essentially, I asked them, well, what are the big things happening in your area? Either that you know are going to happen and people will say, well, we know that, you know, this company is, this rule is going to change or these regulations are going to come in or etc. There are often things like that. But also, what are the trends that you think are important? What are you watching? What do you think is going to be a big deal? And we make a big, big list out of those. And a lot of it at that point is fiction or guesswork. But I then start to refine that. And I come up with a with a reasonably plausible list by the beginning of July of what I want everybody to write about. And then they're due to submit their actual forecasts and analysis in September. There's then quite a lot of adjustment that happens. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, I thought I was going to write about this, but actually that thing I predicted has already happened, or we now know it's not going to happen. So now I'd, I'd rather write about this. So there's a certain amount of, of adjustment that, you know, that kind of thing that takes place. And essentially, I then have everything in by the beginning of October. We have the first draft in the middle of October, and then we spend the last sort of three weeks updating frantically for news and, um, and hoping that there aren't sort of major developments. And of course, this is a terrible time of year to be doing this 
this because that's the time of year when US elections take place. It's when we had you know, the October 7th attacks in 2023 and the Israeli offensive in Gaza hadn't begun and didn't begin until sometime in, in November. So we weren't quite sure exactly what was going to happen. So that's usually quite a, a nail-biting period. So essentially, it's the same people who write The Economist weekly being asked to sort of think not just what should we write about this week or this month, but what do you think of the big trends for next year? But those aren't the only people who are contributing to the annual. We also have our colleagues at the Economist Intelligence Unit, and they provide forecasts specifically for business. They're a B2B arm of the company, and they provide forecasts for specific industries, but also they do country forecasts. So you could go to the EIU and say, what do you think GDP growth in Kenya will be next year? And they'll tell you, they'll give you a number. So we have a bunch of forecasts from them that go into the annual as well for about 80 countries. Then we have guest writers. And in some cases, they do make very specific predictions. In other cases, they're saying, here is a trend to watch. And this year, some of our guest writers, we had Niall Ferguson and Condoleezza Rice, for example, talking about lessons from the original Cold War for the new Cold War that we now find ourselves in. We had Timnit Gebru, who is an AI ethicist and one of the authors of the Stochastic Parrots paper, which is a sort of famous critique of the current way of doing AI and so forth. So we have experts who who weigh in as well and then the final source is that the super forecasting team at good judgment and these are the super forecasters who won the u.s intelligence community's competition to find the world's best geopolitical forecasters they give us a handful of forecasts as well and so all of that goes into the mix so the idea is that we have internal and external voices and my job is to sort of make them all line up and uh, where they contradict each other, decide which one we're going to go with. And, you know, do we think uh, inflation will get down to 2% this year in America or not? And when, when two of our economics gurus disagree on that, I have to sort of make them find some common ground. So, um, so yeah, my job is to, is to corral all of these forecasts. And then the sort of cherry on the top is that I then, when we've got it all in, look across all of it and say, okay, here are the 10 themes or trends that sort of come out of all of these things collectively. And in many cases, you know, there are particular themes that keep popping up. So an obvious one this year is the uncertainty around the outcome of the US election means that you know, that that is casting a shadow over 2024 in lots of areas. Another one would be the way in which the geography of energy resources is changing. So we have quite a lot of pieces that refer to that. And the fact that the, you know, availability of lithium and nickel and things like that is affecting trade and is affecting geopolitics. And so I pull out the trends where I see we have sort of multiple instances of a thing. And this seems to be something that you know, you should pay attention to. And so that's that's what I then do at the end. And that then gives you a way into and a sort of gloss at a high level on what the big themes are for the coming year. We will talk about those 10 trends or uh, important issues that you've identified in a moment in a bit more detail. So now it's out. The World Ahead 2024 is out. So now you're keeping your fingers crossed for the rest of the year that hopefully as many of those predictions come true. Or is there a part of your salary that is tied to the accuracy of those uh, predictions? Fortunately not, although maybe it, maybe it should be. The other thing I have to write every year, so, so I usually write several pieces, but the ones I absolutely have to do, I do the top 10 at the beginning, the summary, and then I also write a how we did Piece. Ah, okay. And essentially, I assess each year how we did with the previous year's forecast and what we got right and what we got wrong. So that I also write a similar, very brief analysis for the super forecast to see how how well the super forecasters did. So, so yes, uh, it is nail biting. The, the most nail biting period is that after we go to press, there is a period of about ten days where we can't change anything. And it's all being printed and whatever we sent to press, that's going to come out. So we really don't want there to be big news during that period. And one of the problems we had this year was that the Argentinian election, the second round, was taking place during that period or shortly after that period, actually. So so we knew that that was coming, but we weren't sure what was going to happen. And then I think generally this year we've been OK. There haven't been big news 
unexpected uh, developments since we came out in basically the beginning of November, sort of second week of November. Whereas last year, with 2022, there were quite a few unexpected things. And in particular, China ended its zero COVID policy in December. And we had predicted that there would be some loosening of the policy during 2023. We weren't expecting a complete abolition of the policy even before 2022 had ended. Uh, So that was one of the things that that we got wrong in in the 2022 edition. So yes, there is this there is this sort of period. But you know, by now, I mean, it's the beginning of January, and I, I still think the forecasts look, look pretty good. And, you know, there hasn't been any sort of major upset that invalidates any of them so far. So you said that obviously astronomical events, uh, they are the easiest because there the certainty is uh, highest that they will actually take place as uh, predicted. You said other things, events, uh, sports events, elections, they tend to be rather planable. Although, you know, we've also learned that even major sports events such as the Olympic Games can be postponed for one reason or another. Elections obviously also sometimes get changed uh, voluntarily, involuntarily. But other things are, I guess, impossible. I mean, uh, no one would have uh, predicted uh, probably what happened uh, in in Israel in October, the attacks uh, by Hamas and the events that were unleashed. uh, Although, you know, even even apparently uh, Israeli intelligence was able to process some of the information that they got from their people on the ground. So I guess those things are difficult to predict. Also, very abrupt uh, changes of policies, such as uh, the COVID uh, changes in in China, which was a a complete U-turn within, I guess, a week or so, you know, where they made an about face from being one of the strictest, most closed down uh, countries uh, in in the world to suddenly opening up. You're right. There are all these things that are very hard to predict. And we didn't predict the pandemic, obviously. We had run pieces in previous years talking about what used to be called disease X. And that was the global health communities, you know, shorthand for at some point there will be a pandemic disease and we need to be ready for it. And many countries had preparations for that. But, you know, you can't you can't predict when that's when that's going to be. And then we also didn't predict the, the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. And those were two big misses. And What I think the COVID example, though, the zero COVID policy in China and the war in Ukraine have in common as examples of why they are so hard to predict is that both of those decisions were the decisions of extremely powerful autocrats. So we are in a world where there are an awful lot, well, there seem to be a growing number of things that depend on the decisions of a few really quite unpredictable men. Um, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Elon Musk, if Donald Trump comes back, then you know, obviously he's the most unpredictable of all. But in all of their, in all of those cases, they have an, an enormous amount of influence over all sorts of things, and they can change their minds very quickly. And they also, and this is a sort of thing to watch out for as a forecaster, forecasters try to avoid cognitive biases as much as they can. But one that they they do fall into, and in fact the super forecasters apologised after failing to predict the, uh, the outbreak of war in Ukraine, they admitted that the cognitive bias that had caught them out was that they assume that people will act rationally. And you can argue that Vladimir Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine was not terribly rational. He did it for essentially ideological reasons and sort of emotional reasons. He wants to rebuild the Russian Empire or something. Um, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. And it, it obviously hasn't worked out the, the way he expected it to. But I think that's something that you have to take account of, that uh, when we try to assess whether Elon Musk will do this or that, or Xi Jinping will do this or that, we sort of say, well, logically, this is what you'd expect. But this is not always about logic. Um, and so that's that's just one of the things that, that can catch you out. The thing we got wrong, the biggest thing we got wrong about 2023 had to do with economics. And it was that we, and it has to be said, most observers of economies around the world expected Western economies to do much worse, and particularly the US economy, to do much worse in 2023. The US economy had a very good year, and an awful lot of people, including us, expected a recession. It didn't happen. There now looks like pretty likely to be a soft landing in in the US. So beating inflation without a recession and without a big uptick in unemployment, which is normally what you'd expect. And um, that's really quite, uh, quite unusual. 
And similarly, we expected recessions in the EU and Britain to be quite likely. And those haven't happened either. Britain may and the EU may now be going into recessions. But just because they happened later than you expected, um, unfortunately, is is uh, no excuse. There's an old joke that economists have predicted nine of the last five uh, recessions. And the joke is that if you predict a recession, there'll always be one eventually. I mean, there was a very long period in, in, uh, in Australia, I think, of 23 years where there was no recession. But by and large, if you say there's going to be a recession, there'll, there'll be one eventually. And so the timing of your prediction really matters. And we were wrong when we said that there would be recessions in 2023. Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit also the saying, you know, that even a broken clock is right twice a day. Exactly. It's interesting. You said, you know, autocrats, uh, they, they tend to be irrational or they make um, loan decisions also. So they, they make predictors' lives more difficult. Is that what you're trying to say? It's not so much that they are more likely to be irrational. It's just that when you have a democratic system where decisions are made by lots of people and, and through consensus, then you're less likely to get illogical or irrational decisions, I think. I mean, I don't know, you could argue that Brexit is a counterexample to that because lots of people made a decision that you know, I think was very dumb. But never mind. Did The Economist predict Brexit? That's a good question, actually. I, I can't remember whether we made a forecast for how that referendum would go, actually, because I wasn't. So I've been editing The World Ahead for four years now, and I was deputy editor for three years before that. So I don't think I was as involved in the process for the 2016 edition. But that is a is a good question. I should go and see what see what we said. But um, but no, I think that the that's the difficulty. I mean, some autocrats in theory, and auto, some autocrats can run a country very well and can can make logical decisions. The problem is that when they start to not make such great decisions and start to make decisions that are about protecting their own power and, and remaining in office and so on, that you can't get rid of them. And similarly, you know, democracies aren't always well run. You can get bad uh, democratic governments that are incompetent. The difference is that in a democracy, you can chuck out the government when they start making bad decisions. If you don't like it, then we can get rid of them. And you can't do that with an autocrat. So you're kind of, with an autocratic system, you're kind of at the mercy of whether they're competent, sensible leaders or not. And, you know, quite often they're not. And occasionally they are. I mean, occasionally you do get sort of benevolent dictators who do who do a, a good job, but generally they their benevolence doesn't last forever. Yeah. Yeah, that you're right. It's probably not that leaders in democratic systems are necessarily more rational than dictators, but the, the process and the limits and the checks exactly. and balances. And that's why that's that's why we think democracy is the superior system, because although it can still produce bad outcomes and bad governments, at least you can change them when they're bad. And um, an autocracy, and I think China is a very good example of that now. It's more autocratic than it's been, you know, since Mao's time. And and she has concentrated lots of power, and he's surrounded by essentially people he's appointed who are much less likely to disagree with him than in you know say 20 years ago where we had the Chinese more of a factional interplay and competition at the top of the Chinese government essentially Xi's faction has won and he's got rid of everybody else and so there is much less intellectual and policy diversity there and I think that has reflected in a decline in the quality of Chinese policy making and there's nothing you can do about that in the Chinese system as it exists now. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. People used to say that, you know, even though it was a not a democracy, it was a one-party state, people said that there was some kind of meritocracy within the Communist Party that produced change every five years. There was a new leader coming in and so on and so forth. And that Exactly. And, and also, changed. you know, it's very famously a, a sort of techno technocratic system with yeah. you know, lots of engineers rather than lots of lawyers and, you know, lots of quite technical people. So you can see that although it's not a democracy, if you've got a diversity of opinions and there's a, a debate about what to do, that's you know, better than a total autocracy where it's just down to the, the decisions of one man. But that's a much closer description of, of what China is now. Since we are talking about China, maybe let's dive into that issue and uh, what will come up there in 2024. Now, one of your 10 major trends is uh, one that you call a second Cold War. So uh, one could argue that maybe we were already in some kind of a Cold War. But that also means that you're not predicting that that Cold War between the US slash the Western world and essentially China will turn into a hot war in 2024 over Taiwan or over something happening in the South China Sea. Yes, I think it's quite unlikely that that, that will happen in 2024. 
there is a school of thought that says that the most likely time for Chinese invasion of Taiwan is in the late 2020s. And that's worrying because that means that whoever is, was well, worrying anyway, but it also means that whoever is elected president in the US this year could be the president that is in office when that happens, if it does. Uh, obviously, not everyone goes along with this sort of window of vulnerability theory, but the idea is that America is beefing up its presence in the Asia-Pacific, and that investment will only really start to bear fruit in the 2030s. And as a result, if you're China, you might say, well, the time to make a move on Taiwan is before that. And particularly if America looks like it's distracted in, in other places. And certainly America does look distracted in Ukraine and the Middle East now. But So there are two elections in 2024 that you know touch on this very obviously, the Taiwanese election and uh, the US election. And I think you know one of the questions is, will will China test the winners of those elections by doing something provocative in the Taiwan Strait or the South China Sea? I think that's quite likely. Now, obviously, that prediction, to a certain extent, as we've highlighted before, rests on the assumption that there is some kind of rationality in uh, the decision making, which uh, we have seen is not always the case. Uh, I remember, you know, many people saying even like days before the Russian invasion in Ukraine, people saying, well, this is not going to happen. Putin is not stupid. He's not crazy. And all these kind of things. And, and likewise, talking about elections uh, in 2016, many people said, well, Trump will never be president. First, people said, That he will never become the Republican nominee. Then eventually he did become the nominee. People said, no, he's never going to win the election and so on and so forth. And eventually he did. And uh, as you've um, also mentioned, probably the most consequential election of 2024 globally will be the US presidential election in November. Where, as it looks now, there will be a rematch of the last election, President Biden against Donald Trump. And uh, looking at the surveys, the polls right now, it's really hard to predict. It seems to be 50-50. That's obviously one of the topics. What would that mean? What, in your view, I mean, obviously, the new president will only take up office in 2025. So that will be something for the world ahead in 2025. But what, what would that mean, in your view, if Trump really became president again. Yeah, so this was a this was a challenge for us because this is the most consequential thing probably of, of 2024, but you're right, the winner will only be inaugurated in 2025. And so the way we handled this in in the economist is that we we ran the world ahead as a supplement to the weekly and in the weekly itself we did a cover leader about essentially the danger of a second Trump presidency because that is by definition outside the scope of the world ahead 2024, because it would only begin in 2025. But what you are seeing in 2024 is a lot of uncertainty around foreign policy and a lot of sort of efforts to Trump-proof various bits of foreign policy. And in particular, the most obvious one is Europe having to step up when it comes to support for Ukraine. And if you look at the actual support for Ukraine in terms of financial support and military support, actually, if you add up the EU countries with Britain, Switzerland and Norway, it exceeds the total support from the US. So in a sense, Europe has stepped up. The problem is that Europe has to do a lot more because Russia is very clearly serious about fighting a long war here. Putin's best bet is certainly to keep fighting throughout 2024 and hope that Donald Trump wins. And if he has to keep fighting longer than that, I mean, essentially, because he's not winning, the best thing he can do is to continue to not lose and hope that something in the external environment like a Trump presidency changes. So Russia is putting something like six or seven percent of its GDP now into the war effort. And it is producing armaments at a faster rate than the whole of NATO put together. So NATO has really deindustrialized its arms production. And it needs to it needs to essentially have an industrial mobilization in order to produce enough weapons, both to support Ukraine, but also because one of the ways that Western countries have been supporting Ukraine has been by essentially running down their own stockpiles of arms. And we see this, and particularly now that there's trouble in the Red Sea and American ships are having to use missiles to shoot down drones and missiles fired from Yemen and all this sort of thing. This is fighting on, on multiple fronts like this or, or supporting allies who are, who are fighting in various places. Is This is not how 
military plan as expected things and the west does not have the military capacity to replenish its its um, armed stockpiles so that is a is a big problem and that is something that again putin sees as, is rightly as a weakness and so so i think this is the right thing for european countries to do but it's also the, the right thing to do as a insurance policy against Donald Trump coming back, because it's it seems very likely that he would he would I mean already Republicans in Congress are blocking more aid to Ukraine, but um, Donald Trump would you know he's he's got existing beef with Zelensky in particular, so it's obvious that he would want to he would want to pull the plug. So yeah, that's just one of the consequences. I mean, there are others as well. We don't know what the implications would be for climate policy, for the future of NATO, whether Europe would have to sort of go it alone more generally. That seems quite likely. And we have no idea where Donald Trump stands on Taiwan. And you can argue that he might go one of two ways. And both both arguments are quite plausible. One is that he wants to he talks about being tough on China. So you'd have thought, well, in that case he would stand behind Taiwan because he you know, he he likes the idea of looking tough and using lots of military hardware and he's boasted about how his his nuclear button is bigger than than Kim Jong un's and all this sort of thing. On the other hand, Donald Trump has also asked why America should bother to defend its allies in Asia, like South Korea. And he once said, Are they paying us? for our, our protection. So it's like a sort of, you know, mafia protection racket kind of mentality, which is, well, if they're not giving us money, who cares what happens to them? You could imagine him saying that about Taiwan. Who cares what happens to Taiwan? It's some tiddly little island that no one's ever heard of, he might say, because, you know, that's what he tends to say. When he's, when he hasn't heard of something, he's, he says no one's heard of it. He assumes that everyone has the same worldview that he does. So you really can imagine that, and that's the sort of enormous uncertainty. And that's why if he does win, I think, you would expect China to, to to want to test him pretty quickly by doing something, you know, flying planes into Taiwan's airspace or, or whatever, to see whether America responds by sending ships or, you know, protesting at the UN or whatever, because they just want to see, you know, would he would he defend Taiwan if Puss came to shove? So there are all of these there are all of these ways in which in which the uncertainty around Trump is already casting a shadow over twenty twenty four. I mean, as you rightly said, it's impossible to predict what would happen. But do you think that a second presidency would be worse than the first one? Because, I mean, a lot of these things we've seen in the, during his first term in office, this irrationality, sudden shifts in, in terms of communication. Then you had some people around him that implicitly or explicitly claimed to be the adults in the room were trying to rein in like a petulant little child running around the West Wing. Do you think a second term, some people say a second term would be worse because, uh, you know, he knows that he can't be reelected. He knows, you know... Yeah. That, that well, I don't think it's so much that... The, the, I don't think um, not being reelected is would, would be a constraint. He's already talking about how if he does win, he thinks he deserves another four years after that because he was... Because the, the election was stolen from him, he says, in 2020. And so a sort of... So that justifies... The compensation, so yeah. That, Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, America isn't a democracy, it's a republic, which sort of, you know, th this kind of this kind of talk from from Republicans. So there are sort of dictator vibes, definitely. But no, I think the the argument for why a second Trump presidency would be more unpredictable and destabilizing than the first is quite plausible, because Trump did, doesn't seem to have expected to win in 2016. So when he did, he came into power, and he had a very strange view about what the president could do. And he seemed to think that he could boss everyone around like a CEO, and he could do things like ask the Justice Department to investigate his opponents and, and you know, essentially do whatever he liked. And he ran up against what he calls the deep state, but what most people would call, you know, the institutions of the of American democracy. And clearly, he is already making plans to ensure that they don't stop him in a second presidency. So he wants to purge the Justice Department of what he regards as you know deep state radical socialists or whatever but essentially people who he hasn't appointed and then put his own people in who who um, have to answer to him and so i think a lot of the ways in which he was thwarted by the guardrails of american democracy and the american justice system he's he's already planning on how he can get rid of them and so that will mean that both domestically and internationally he would be I think more likely to to get some of the things he wants done because he he's learned from how he wasn't able to do everything that he wanted the first time. So yeah, that's very worrying. A bold prediction: the world in ten years. So we've talked about the world this year or the year ahead. So we'll now open it up, and I would like you to give us a 
broad impression overview of what you think some of these trends sure. that we've discussed will be in about 10 years time? I think if we look forward to 2034, we'll be in a much more multipolar and disorderly world than we are now. That's the way things are going now, a more multipolar world and more disorder, more conflict. And I think we'll have retreated further from what now looks like the high watermark of globalization, which was in 2008. So we'll have a US-China Cold War. We'll have lots of countries and lots of companies trying not to take sides or trying to be friends with both sides. And we'll see this reflected in supply chains, which I think will be much more regional. And we'll also see it in things like technology standards, which will be more fragmented in areas like telecoms and payments. And this will increase cost and complexity and political risk for businesses in all kinds of industries. And that, again, continues trends that we are seeing today. And this is, of course, the opposite of the world of open markets and free trade that The Economist was founded to campaign for and would like to see. And we should remember that things like the rolling out of telecoms to billions of people around the world was made possible because of global standards. So you could essentially use the same phone everywhere. And that meant that you could have factories anywhere in the world that would make phones that would, would work anywhere. And um, when you have fragmented standards, it raises costs for businesses, it raises costs for consumers, and it has social costs. And we sort of, I think, have taken that standardization that we saw saw in, in, in tech and telecoms in particular for granted. And I think we're about to be reminded of what the world looks like when you know, your phone doesn't work in this country and you, you can't pay with that card here because we don't know about that payment system and you have to use something else and so forth. So I think that's the, I think that sort of more fragmented and multipolar world because it has essentially geopolitical origins, this fragmentation um, is the kind of world we'll see in 2034. And I would love to be wrong about this. I would dearly love to be proved wrong, but I think that's the way we're going. Let's move on to slightly different topics because, of course, not everything in the world is politics uh, or geopolitics, uh, but there are also some other things happening particularly in technology, which is one of the areas that you're also very much interested in and probably the most important topic of 2023, but probably also going into 2024, is artificial intelligence. It's been now, what, a bit more than a year since uh, OpenAI opened up its uh, ChatGPT service for the wider public. I think that was in November of 2022. It was right I, at I the believe. end of November 22, yes, that's right. Yep. And since then, we've seen an enormous development in that field, uh, both from OpenAI, obviously, but also other companies that are scrambling in that race of uh, coming up with the best technology. And it sometimes seems that it's not on a weekly, but almost on a daily basis that a new version of some AI tool comes out, some new capabilities and so on and so forth. Is that really the thing that will change everything in society, in, in economics, in the way we live? Or is that a bit overblown? Um, so I think the best analogy is with what happened with the internet. And if you go back and look at the internet hype and the internet boom of the early 90s, which I remember very well because it was my ticket into journalism. So I actually went to university to study AI in particular. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work. I'd read lots of science fiction in the 80s and I wanted to build robots and AI. So I um, I fooled around with sort of chatbots and things like that and things that write poems and, and answer questions and make logical deductions on my computer as a teenager. And I thought, well, I'll go and learn to do this properly at Oxford. And when I got to Oxford, I discovered that actually the, you know, the state of AI was, was terrible. The approach that everyone had been pursuing throughout the most of the 70s and the 80s, symbolic logic approaches to AI had run into the sand. And what was what's now known as the AI winter was just beginning. And throughout the 90s and the, and the you know, basically the, the 2000s, AI was quite moribund. And it was an embarrassing term that nobody used. And if you used it, you wouldn't get any funding and, and so on. And then everything really turns around in sort of 2010 or so. The flame is kept alive in, in Canada. But the reason I mentioned all of this is that, so I, I basically couldn't do what I expected to do, which was sort of go and work in, work in AI. But I did know about the internet as a result of doing computer science at, um, at university. And so when I came out into the job market in the early 90s, I discovered that none of the newspapers, you know, knew, knew anything and had people who knew anything about the internet. So that was my ticket into journalism. So I remember very well all of the 
claims that were made about it. And there were people who said that the internet would lead to world peace and it would get rid of poverty and um, all this sort of thing. And I was also, I mean, my first book written in 1998 was a was a response to all of this. It was about the impact of the telegraph in the 19th century. And the same claims were made about the telegraph, particularly when it comes to world peace. A lot of people thought that when you wire up the world with telegraphs, that you sort of take away misunderstanding because it is assumed that the cause of misunderstanding is a lack of sufficient communication infrastructure. Now, I think we know now that that's not why... Might sometimes why be the opposite, happens. right? If you look at social yeah, exactly. media. Right, exactly. So I think social media kind of resoundingly disproves that one. But it is, you know, I've heard... I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has made that argument quite recently. He made it in, in 2016, in fact, before the, um, before the US election. He said that the more we connect people, you know, the, the, better, the better everything will be. And I think, you know... That we can look askance at that view. But this was the kind of thing that people were talking. So the big debate in the 90s was, was the internet going to change everything? And was it going to solve all these big problems? And was this a new era? And was it the greatest technology since fire, as Wired magazine said? And I think if we look back at it now, it is possible to say two things at the same time. First, that all of the sort of biggest, most you know, boldest claims about it, leading to world peace and all the rest of it, did not happen. But at the same time, it did actually change everybody's lives. And we all use it all the time. And here I am talking to you over it, over, over it right now. The other thing about it is, I think, if some of the debates that people had about it then, what does the internet mean for business? I don't think there's a clear answer to that even now. It's a moving target because the technology continues to evolve. And I think this is the way to think about AI, which is the biggest, boldest claims, either that it's going to fix everything and make us all immortal or that killer robots are going to come and kill us all, are wrong. And the chances are that it's like the internet, which is that it's a big, useful tool, that it will change the way we do lots of things. There will be good things about it and there will be bad things about it. And the trick will be to set up our systems and our laws and our regulations so that we get the benefits of the good things about it and we minimise the drawbacks. And that's kind of the debate we've been having about the internet. You know, how do you regulate speech on the internet? What do you do about, you know, people trading Nazi memorabilia or whatever, or or child sexual abuse, you know, material, etc, etc. So there are all of these thorny issues that we've been grappling over with the internet. But at the same time, we recognise that it has been a massive benefit to people in their personal lives and, and to business. So I think the same is true of AI. I think it's a useful set of tools. Um, it won't live up to all of the claims, good or bad, made about it but it is significant and it will change our lives in lots of unexpected ways so that's where i come out and the problem with this sort of moderate position in the middle which is i think informed by both knowledge of the technology and its limitations because i've played with these things i did an interview with gpt2 for the 29 edition of um, the world ahead so i rigged it up as a chatbot because it wasn't a chatbot but i rigged it up as one and essentially i did the ancestor this is like the grandfather of chat gpt and i got and one of the things it predicted by the way was that donald trump would lose the election in 2020 but anyway so i i speak as someone who knows what this technology can and can't do i think and also has the historical perspective both from things like the telegraph but also the internet and the other thing i have is and this comes from the super forecasting team and that is a healthy scepticism for predictions made by the people who are actually working on this technology full time it turns out that people who are have devoted their careers to a particular thing are not reliable forecasters about that thing they are much more likely to overstate the world changing impact good or bad of that thing whatever field they work in because of course they will because they've devoted their whole lives to it so they have to have persuaded themselves that it's the most consequential thing ever um so the last people you should listen to about the dangers of ai are the people who spend their whole time building it and you also should not listen to them on the benefits of ai you should listen to sensible people in the middle and the problem with the sensible people in the middle is that saying that this is a great tool and it'll probably help with lots of things but we're not going to have killer robots or immortality that's much less sexy than the, let's talk about the killer robots or the immortality and so the headlines are very skewed towards the big bold hyperbolic claims that are probably wrong and then the other confusing factor with ai is that we are trained from birth by hollywood to fear ai so there is a sort of natural societal bias towards the doom and gloom Frankenstein end of the st of the story. And I, I think all of that is wrong. So going back to the sort of forecast for 2024, I think that the debate in 2023 has been skewed in that direction. 
And I think it's partly been skewed in that direction deliberately by industry leaders who would much rather we talked about immortality and killer robots. They're much less keen on us talking about the real problems that have to be dealt with now, like bias and discrimination and intellectual property rights and privacy. And those are all things that regulators are grappling with uh, in the EU in particular and how you how you deal with those issues raised by AI. But the the tech bros like Sam Altman and Elon Musk would much rather say, no, 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 let's t- let's talk about these big, you know, theoretical risks far out into the future. So I think it's a deliberate distraction. And I think what we're going to see in 2024 is, I hope, the debate getting a bit more real and a bit more realistic. We're going to see a lot of experiments turning into deployments. So I think we are going to see a lot more deployment of these systems for good and bad. And I think we're going to get good outcomes and bad outcomes. And that in turn is going to mean that we get more action from regulators. There are various regulators around the world who've proposed various approaches to this. And I think that's a healthy competition. China's got one approach. The US has got another, which is basically don't do anything yet. The EU's got another. And uh, so we'll see which of those regulatory approaches has traction. And that's the way in which I think AI is going to become um, more real and more, more concrete in 2024. So don't listen to the experts, essentially, or at least don't listen to those who are most involved in it. This is a, so- a super forecasting. So this is the distinction between hedgehogs and foxes, isn't it? And so essentially you want sort of generalists. I mean, the, the best super forecasters are, are generalists who can learn very quickly. They're not experts in a in a particular field who have spent their whole time learning about that thing and then have sort of particular vested interests or or views that that they don't want to change and so yes i mean it's it's interesting because because the, a lot of these skills overlap with what it takes to be a good business leader not being too wedded to anything and also what it takes to be a good journalist and so you know i think there is a sort of natural alignment between what super forecasters do and and, and the skills you need in other areas so with AI, essentially what you're saying is it's going to be another groundbreaking technology such as, I don't know, movable type uh, maybe or the invention of the steam engine. Well, I think the internet is, yeah, internet, exactly, computer. or the internet. I think the internet's the best example because we still don't know the answer of what is the impact of the internet and what does the internet say mean for business. And so asking what is the impact of AI going to be or what does it mean for companies or something like that, we should ask that question understanding that we won't know the answer in 20 years and we won't know it we may never know the answer there won't there won't be an answer in the same way that there isn't an answer to you know what does communications mean mean for business or whatever or what does the internet mean when you ask those questions you should bear in mind you should not expect a simple answer and you shouldn't even expect there to be a point where there is an answer what does seem to change, though, is is the speed of uh, the developments, right? I think if we look at AI, what's happening now, that's considerably faster than the changes that came with the internet in the 90s and early 2000s. Maybe if you look back to the 60s, uh, 70s, when computers became more prevalent, that was even slower in the 19th century. I'm not sure, to be honest, how long did it take for the steam engine to really roll out and change the way production was happening across different countries? So the, the speed seems to have become much faster. Yes, I, that, that is fair. Although, I mean, I think it's chiefly because the AI is deployed through infrastructure that's already there, which is the internet infrastructure. And so that infrastructure allows you to... I, I think this this can actually be quite misleading because when a big company like Facebook or, or Google or Microsoft could deploy an AI tool to billions of people overnight because it could deploy it inside something they already use then we kind of think, oh, well, AI is, you know, is going to take all our jobs tomorrow or it's it's going to, you know, everyone will be using this. Most companies are not Google, Microsoft and, and Meta, Facebook. Most companies are still using 15-year-old accounting systems. Most companies have only just really woken up to the, using cloud email because a lot of companies in the 2010s thought, well, if we use the cloud, then hackers will get our stuff. And actually using the cloud is more secure, not less secure, because Google can hire better security people than you can. And so it has taken a very long time for people to realise all this stuff. So there is a sort of natural inertia to how quickly things get deployed. And I think we kind of look at how quickly Microsoft can deploy AI inside Microsoft Word and say, well, this means that everything is going to change that quickly. And that isn't representative of everything and so um so yes and no up to a point i i, I think is is what i would say about yeah. that. the other thing is there are examples and my favorite one is the example of a car so the number of cars in america went from eight million in 1902 sorry eight thousand in 1902 to eight million 
1922. So that's a thousandfold increase in 20 years. And a thousand is basically two to the power 10. So that's doubling every two years 10 times. And doubling every two years is what we normally call Moore's Law. So what's that telling you? It's telling you that building a one-tonne car out of steel in the early 20th century followed Moore's Law, which is not what you expect. And this is because actually Moore's Law is a generalisation of a deeper law called Wright's Law, which says that the more you make something, the better you get at making it. And we are seeing this in you know the collapsing cost of things like solar panels and, and other uh, and EVs and things like that now. So it's a learning curve. But what it reminds you is that it is actually possible to roll out physical infrastructure surprisingly quickly. It's not just a characteristic of digital. I mean, you can do it. You can roll things out very, very quickly with digital infrastructure, but we've done it in the past with physical infrastructure too. So uh, it's not, you know, it is possible for, and previous technologies have rolled out very quickly. And cars is the best example, despite not being a digital technology. Good. Excellent. Uh, this is fascinating. And of course, we'll see. I think one of the, the things that at least seem to be the case is that regulation is uh, struggling to keep up. Uh, so there's a lot of things that... Yes, I think that's the, I, and that's the lesson from the internet as well, that, um, that you know, that it is difficult, it's a challenge. But, you know, with luck, we can learn some lessons from the, the challenges of internet regulation. Who knows? I think it, what's healthy is that there are there is a general acceptance that you know regulators have to move sooner rather than later, and also that there are there's a diversity of regulatory approaches, and so we'll be able to see kind of what works and what doesn't. Executive briefing: What you should read now. We ask um, our guests to give some recommendations what people could read uh, further if they want to dive a bit deeper into the topic. And obviously, please do feel free to mention The World Ahead, which I think is uh, the best starting point. But maybe you have a few other suggestions uh, when it comes to looking into the future, looking into some of these uh, topics. So my recommendation for what to read, obviously, apart from The Economist and the um and the world ahead which comes out in the economist every every november is super forecasting which is the book by philip tetlock and i find it very very useful even if you aren't someone who needs to make forecasts essentially what it does is it it tells you all the ways that people tend to get predictions about the future wrong and it gives you a whole load of techniques uh, so that you can be less wrong And even if you don't use them to explicitly make forecasts, I think just being aware of those pitfalls and being um, aware of those techniques can be extremely useful. It just helps you think about the future um, in a more self-critical way. You you find yourself jumping to a conclusion and then saying, well, hang on a minute, might I be you know, falling into this, this cognitive bias or making this mistake? So it really does sort of change the way that you look at and think about the future. So I, I find that uh, very, very valuable and I recommend it and I think more people should read it. So Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock. And of course, as always, we will put a link to that book into the show notes. We've already come to the end of our podcast. We haven't been able to cover everything that is in the world ahead, those 10 major trends. Well, the, the one we've missed out on, which I think we ought to have mentioned, so I just throw it in at the end. Um, and it was the it was number one on my list. The biggest thing that's happening in 2024, this is the first year in history where more than half of the world's population lives in a country that's holding a national election. That's never happened before. We think that countries with a total population of 4.2 billion people are having national elections this year. That doesn't mean they're all presidential or parliamentary elections. So, for example, the EU elections, those are super national elections. But, you know, EU member states are all voting for the EU parliament. And then places like Brazil and Turkey are having municipal local elections, but they're having them across the whole country. Anyway, so there's something like 75 national elections happening around the world in 2024. And I think on the one hand, you could argue that's a triumph of democracy. But I think the reality is that actually this will highlight the fact that democracy varies very widely in quality. And there is more to democracy than voting. And in particular, if you think about the Russian election in March, I can tell you the result of the Russian presidential election in March right now, because it wouldn't even be happening if, if, if Vladimir Putin wasn't absolutely certain he was going to win. So that's not democracy because you're, there's no way that the voters can change the outcome. At the other end of the spectrum, we're going to have an election in Britain, which is one of the few countries ranked as a full democracy in the EIU Democracy Index. And it looks most likely that the government is going to get chucked out. And that is democracy working. That when you don't like, you don't like the party in power, you can get rid of them if you want to. So it's not the case that most democracies are free and fair. We think about half of them, half of the national elections happening this year are truly free and fair. And so I think One of the things we're going to see this year is a spotlight on 
the state of democracy and the variation in the quality of democracy that you get in different parts of the world. So that's the that's the sort of biggest theme. And that, you know, obviously connects to lots and lots of other things, and in particular the, the US election. But I think that's and you know the state of extremism in Europe and so forth. But I think that's the, the that's sort of the biggest single thing that's happening this year. That is true. We talked about some elections, primarily exactly. about the US election. That's the sort of, of umbrella of course, thing. Uh, but there are others and as you yeah. rightly pointed out, elections are not elections. It's also not binary. So there's a large zone of uh, different shades of uh, quality of election. Exactly. India will also be having elections this year, parliamentary elections, the largest country in the world now, where also the outcome is pretty certain. But it is, a, it is I mean, we I think we call that one a flawed democracy. So there are problems with freedom of expression in India and also harassment of the opposition. But it's still possible to change the government. You know, India is, it's not a perfect democracy, but it's pretty good. And similarly, the US counts as a flawed democracy rather than a full democracy because it does have some pretty obvious problems with gridlock concerns about the uh, well the electoral college is arguably deliberately anti-democratic and there's also a big problem that a lot of the country has sort of lost faith in the in the political system both sides think the other side is rigging it basically and you have massive problems like gerrymandering and, and so forth so so yes there, there are but even so it gets sort of seven out of ten i think as a democracy it's places like russia that get one you know? so yes. um so i i if you and obviously if you want to know about this it's uh, it's in the world ahead we we literally have a chart that shows you the uh, the rankings and lets you look up where your country comes uh, in the in this in this score system yes so lots of elections and not all of them democratic i think uh, that's probably also true for the economists that most uh, institutions that somewhat track the state of democracy and there are several organizations that do that have said that democracy is retracting by and large since about uh, a decade ago or so when there was some kind of a peak of democratic systems around the world. But obviously, that is a process that might be reversed. And I guess we both agree that it, that would be a wonderful thing if we could um, become did, more democratic globally in the years ahead. Yes, please do check out uh, The World Ahead. Uh, also, do check out The Economist. I think it's uh, very beneficial to read it frequently. It enlightens you and it's a very well-written uh, publication for everyone interested in the topics that we deal with here in the podcast. Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to enlighten us on uh, The World Ahead in 2024. I keep my fingers crossed for you personally that many of them will actually turn out to be true. Although, you know, of course, some of the, the doom and gloom we hope maybe there will be a better outcome than what might be expected thank you very much and have a great day thank you very much it's been great to talk to you This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.